Welcome to Virtual Economy, a podcast about the business of games for the rest of us. We're your hosts. I'm Amanda Farrow. And I'm Michael Footer. On most episodes, we bring you analysis of the biggest business beats in video gaming news. But today, we've got an exciting bonus episode interview with Indie Mega Booth founder Kelly Wallach, who is now working as partner and community builder at investment firm OneUp Ventures. This is bonus episode six How Equity Funding Works. I am super, super excited for this conversation. Kelly, welcome to Virtual Economy. It is lovely to have you here. Yes, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm so excited. We we talk to a lot of developers. Um, In addition to the podcast, uh, we're consultants. We do a lot of pro bono work for pre-funding indies. And of course, they're pre-funding. So one of the big questions is, how do I get money? How does Uh, one even money? Yes. That was actually uh, so one of lot- my very first questions that I had when I started working <laughs> in the games industry. I was like, how is anybody paying for this? <laughs> and and we're going to help answer a piece of that. Um, but before we get started, Kelly, one thing we ask literally every interview guest at the beginning of an interview is, what is your origin story? How did you get here? Yeah. So it's funny. I've actually had people tease me about that. It sounds like I have like a superhero origin story. So (laughs) I'll give the kind of medium length version of this. Um, But basically in my previous life, I was a scientist. So in my background and like what I went to school for was chemistry. So I started off in that field. Um, I worked at a nanotechnology company and did analytical work. Um, I had really, really wanted to go to grad school at MIT. It was like a dream of mine. Um, So at some point I had applied to like work at the school so that I could use that as a way to like learn more about the, um, about the university and see, you know, if I could get in to go to school there. Uh, And so I got hired as um, basically like a technical lab manager for a chemical engineering lab um, at the university. And I loved the job. It was great. I worked with a bunch of undergraduate students. Um, we worked with professional companies within inside of Boston, uh, which if you're familiar or maybe not with the biotech industry in Boston, it's actually pretty big. Mm-hmm. Um, coincidentally, there was also a very big indie game scene in Boston. Um, so I'll get to that in a second. Uh, so this very is a job true. that, yeah, so this was a job that I really loved and enjoyed. Um, I learned a lot, you know, I was working with these really bright smart, entrepreneurial, artistic, creative people, um, which also has parallels to the indie game scene and the games industry. Uh, Yeah. And then they were doing the maintenance people were doing some like testing on uh, the steam pipes, which like heat the university and a steam pipe exploded and destroyed the lab. (laughs) So. Oh, no. I know. Crazy. Nobody was hurt, thankfully. It was very that scary. Sounds like, that sounds yeah. like almost, if things would have went really sideways for you, that sounds like yeah. it would have been a super villain exactly. origin story. We yeah. always say that our youngest is like one bad science experiment away from being a super villain. <laughs> so I feel this like this is, not, is like adjacent to that. Yeah. This what is would not your superpower name be though? Like, would it be like vapor? Or... Oh, that was way cool. I was going to say like steam, steam woman or something. <laughs> but that sounds like I'm running a train. Like I work in a train car or something. <laughs> This is also like another thing. I'm I'm kind of good and bad at naming things. Indie Mega Booth. I'm very like prescriptive in how I name things. Um, so yeah, I would end up being like steam steam person or something. <laughs> um, so anyway, so thankfully nobody was hurt. Um, but it was just it was a disaster. Um, the lab was in the sub basement of a building. It basically rained in the lab for like hours until they could turn it off. It was like an oh. eight inch main steam pipe. I mean, it was a mess. So my dream job turned into basically an insurance claims adjustment job, which ate up you know the rest of the time basically from when I was there. Um, and so after that, I left to work at a um, biofuel company and took a couple of the folks that I had been working with and like, you know, did some patents and, you know, did this job for a little while. And I was like, what am I doing? So I was exploring a couple different options in my career. And then, like I had mentioned, there's a really big indie game scene in Boston. And I had a friend at the time who um, wanted to start going to meetups and learn more about the industry and making video games. Uh, so I started going to the like, IGDA meetups and, you know, the, there's a Boston unity user group. And I mean, there was like something I felt like every other day, uh, there was some sort mm-hmm. of meetup. So I started going to these and just really fell in love with the, 
the community and the people and the idea of it. And like I said, it kind of reminded me a bit of the, the students that I was working with at MIT. Um, and the thing that's really cool with the indie game scene is that for me, it feels like people from all different areas and industries. And they're like, I used to be a physicist or I used to be a drummer or I used to be an installation artist or I used to be this. And then they kind of like fell out of those industries then like conglomerated into this like place that had a Venn diagram that overlapped with all of this stuff. Um, so it just kind of really felt like I had like met my people essentially. Uh, and so I ended up um, getting a job at a place that was like a contract shop in, um, in Boston got hired on as an admin assistant, essentially, um, when I first started. And then they trained me up to do project management work. Um, I worked there for probably like two years or so and learned a ton about, like, I knew how to program kind of um, not well enough that anybody should like pay me for it. But that's something that you kind of like learn in the sciences. Um, and it was something I've always been interested in computers and, and technology and uh, games and, and programming and things like that. Um, but I learned a lot more about like, how does software development actually work? How do you do project management for um, for software and for games, how does game design work? Uh, and it was during the time there that the concept of the Indie Mega Booth came up. And so I started attending events, um, working with local um, developers and studios. And um, yeah, so starting to organize the Mega Booth was something that I picked up basically as a way to learn more about the industry. And I just thought it was a cool idea and wanted to meet people. And we ran it the first time, it was 16 developers. Um, and then everyone was like, that was great. Are we going to do it again? And I'm like, I don't know, I guess. And so we did again. Uh, and then it was kind of a stop being a question of like, are we going to do it again? And more like, when is it happening again? And how do I get, you know, how do I tell my friends to get into it? Um, and so to give a little like kind of like just mini elevator pitch of what the mega booth actually was or is, um, it was basically like a showcase with inside of large consumer facing events. So we were primarily at events like PAX, um, the Penny Arcade Expo, which happens in um, Seattle and Boston. And then we would do showcases at GDC, which is the Game Developers Conference. Um, and then we helped organize events uh, globally and kind of like one offshoots and things like that. Um, and so that ended up being something that I ran for a decade um, up until the pandemic when I put it into hibernation, when the events industry totally collapsed in mm -hmm. on itself. Um, but we worked with over 800 studios during that time. Um, we have a really robust alumni community. Um, like I said, we had done events all over the world. Um, it was kind of like a stepping stone for developers to get into the games industry. Um, and we also had a lot of work around like grants and scholarships and connecting people up with publishers and platform holders and um, creating networks and community with inside of the games industry. Um, and then partway through that, I also um, took on the role as the chairperson for the Independent Games Festival, which is um, an award ceremony for indie devs that's held at GDC each year. Um, I just retired from that um, this past year, so I ran it for seven years. Um, I think it was the longest running chair, um, also the only woman to hold the position. Mm. Um, and so that was something that I really loved and, and enjoyed the work of that. Um, you know, I, I got to make a lot of changes um, to the way that the jury and the judge selection worked and um, you know, working with the GDC team was really great. Uh, yeah. And then about like, I guess it's been four years now, I got approached by Ed Freeze, um, who, for those of you that aren't familiar with him, um, worked at Microsoft for a really long time, helped launch the original Xbox, um, ran the publishing department for a long time. Uh, it's funny because we're kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum of the games industry. So like very big AAA stuff, very indie, you know, like mm -hmm. a different generation um, as well, too. So I wasn't actually super familiar with him when we met, but we got connected up through a mutual friend and um, he was starting this venture fund, um, which at the time I kind of, I guess I had a neutral opinion on venture funds. I didn't really know too much about them or really what that meant, but uh, there's a big community aspect to the one up fund. And um, Ed and I were talking about what his vision and his goals were for the fund and we're very aligned in it. And it was kind of like an elevated version, I guess, of like the mega booth community in a way and elevated meaning like, there's funding. <laughs> so there was actually <laughs> yes. money to like do things with this community. Um, but we had a lot of shared goals and a lot of shared values around it. And so I came on to do the community building work. Um, and I've been doing that since um, prior to basically the start of the fundraising, of the first fund. And I had been working on that, um, like kind of on the side for the whole time. And then, you know, as the mega booth was going into hibernation, and I was thinking a lot about like, okay, what are the next, next steps for me? Where, what are the things that I care about? What do I feel passionate about? And I really feel that a great way to have impact is to be able to be in a decision-making position to give people funding, essentially. It was a big problem 
um, towards the end of the mega booth that I would notice, like I'd see stuff that I would love or teams that I felt really passionate about and they were just struggling to get money and to get funding. Um, you know, and some of that is that it can look kind of homogenous, um, at the decision-making level. And so, you know, I'm like, if I have an opportunity to be in a position to do something like that and to make, um, you know, to make a high impact, I think that that could be really important. Um, so I came on as a full-time partner in the fund earlier in the year. Um, you had mentioned, you know, it is a VC firm, but it's also just basically mm-hmm. me and Ed are the partners. And then we have a fund administrator named mm-hmm. Chris. So we're a pretty small, mm-hmm. <laughs> we're a pretty small operation. Um, our first fund was a $30 million fund. So, I mean, it's not a small amount of money, but no, that's, there, that's a good like, amount of money. Yeah. But that's funny. Cause it's like, you know, your exposure level to stuff. I mean, there's like billion dollar funds and $500 million sure. funds. So sure. it's just like your scale of, of operation <laughs> on it. But, um, yeah. In, but in, in terms kind of, of indie development, like a, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a killer amount of money. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so our investments out of the first fund, we had a standardized check size of 500 K. Um, which is yeah, which is a decent investment amount. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't want to jump too ahead of ourselves because we're going to talk more about the finance part of things. Um, but that's basically kind of like my my medium version of my origin story and kind of how I ended up uh, where I'm at today. Yeah, I don't want to understate the impact of the Indie Mega Booth because okay. for those of us, we're, you know, we're former journalists and yeah. my very first uh, PAX West, covering PAX West, was the year where it was literally like three days home after Gamescom. And it was, and and the funny thing is, so if, you know, if you're a journalist, you start to learn like, okay, if there are big publishers who are going to be both at Gamescom and PAX West, because they are so close together, you're going to see a lot of the same stuff. So why are you going to PAX West? You're going to PAX West for indies. For the indies. Yeah. Yeah. And Indie Mega Booth was such a big part of that. And some of the greatest conversations that I had with other journalists, especially was, hey, what did you see? How's your show going? What did you see? And I think there was the year that Samurai Gun was in the Indie Mega booth. Was there like, that was the game of the show. And mind you, there's huge booths and 2K's got their huge booth like they always have. But everybody, like you see all these journalists like, hey, you want to get in around a Samurai Gun before (laughs) before your next appointment? And it was, and it was this whole thing where we've talked on this show before about the cost of exhibiting at an event. Yeah. Whether that's PAX or then you're talking E3, which is significantly larger, or even just going to GDC as an individual and how much a ticket costs for that. The fact that Indie Mega Booth exists and hopefully will exist again, um, that's just my personal hope, um, is is that there is this, this way for people who might not have a huge amount of resources to be part of this event in a in a collective. I mean, that I mean, if you walk through the Indie Mega Booth and as as we often did. It's it's elbow to elbow. Like it is the yeah. most densely packed <laughs> part of whether it's PAX East or PAX West. So Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for saying that. I mean, I'm so proud of the work that we did. And like I don't want to make any official announcements, but I'm looking into what's happening next. So I'll just kind of leave that as a little byline for now. Um, but yeah, you know, and like the cost thing, I think too, we would negotiate um you know, for group pricing and try to get mm-hmm. discounts and help with stuff, but we were also like really involved in and I've had people actually, I just, I went to Day Ended Devs this weekend and I had a lot of people that were like, it is so hard to show on your own because there is just like mm-hmm. a lot of like logistical navigation and like, you know, where, how do I order carpeting and electrical and what does it look like and what do I do? So we were doing a lot of that. Um, but then I mentioned, you know, we would have the teams pay for the space and then we had like a small fee on top of stuff that would just basically help us pay for signage. And then we would financially support the rest of the team through sponsorships. Um, so we weren't like upcharging the developers anything other than really just like, okay, this is like a shared, you know, a shared space thing, you know, like we need mm-hmm. to buy a little sign or buy some tools for the kit or something like that. Um, but it was still very cost prohibitive, you know, and travel can be really expensive, especially for something like GDC. And so we really, um, uh, you know, in the last couple of years in particular, really worked hard to try to find uh, like grants and scholarship programs. And we had an alumni dom- uh, donation fund where basically folks who had been through the mega booth before that may have like found some success would donate money back in to help offset the cost for teams. So at some point, I think we had almost like 50 some percent of uh, booth costs and things covered for teams. Um, you That's know, great. Various programs that we were running, um, which I was really proud of. You know, I mean, there's always more work to do in that space. But this is the thing for me is like, you know, we live in a capitalist society, right? Like whether we want to, whether we love it or not, you know, that's just the way that the world works. Um, and so I just really 
wanted to try as much as possible that the money wasn't a barrier to people um, being able to participate and get these opportunities. And, you know, as much as I'm bummed out about stuff during the pandemic, which is a huge topic, um, you know, something that I think is really great is having more kind of validity to doing meetings virtually and to like Mm -hmm. being able to do pitches virtually and like digital events and things like that and having them be taken seriously by publishers, platform holders, investors and stuff in a way that I think they weren't before because, you know, there's aside from it being cost prohibitive, depending on what part of the world you're coming from, depending on what your personal situation is, you know, like health conditions, like all of these kinds of things, Mm -hmm. um, you know, can be very prohibitive to like go to a physical event. Um, you know, I, I bring that up mostly just because like we were trying as much as we could to make things accessible. Um, but then also like, we just wanted to have like really cool games and interesting stuff and fun things. And I was just really excited, like every time that we would have submissions open to just see what people were working on, you know, it's just so creative and so interesting. And like, I, I really value the fact that people would come to us, you know, first with a game or, you know, be their first experience into like starting to showcase and talk to publishers and platform holders and things like that just like was a very special um, situation for us. And I think, you know, hearing feedback from folks like you and like the teams that it meant a lot to them just is like, it's very cool. Um, You know, I didn't know what I was getting into and what I was creating at the time (laughs) when I made it. So (laughs) You created a straight up indie game cultural zeitgeist. (laughs) That's really what that was. There was... It, it was it, Mike. Mike's not understating it either. Like every every critic that ever went to PAX or that ever went to GDC, you know, that would be the first place we went. That would be our <laughs> in between the big appointments. It would be like, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter what the AAA folks are doing. We'll always hear about that. We care about the little guys that are going to be mm-hmm. here for like a day, and then yeah. they're going to cycle out, like in the mini booth or whatever, yeah. or we but- had to get in while the getting was good. So. Yeah. I love I love the approach to ensuring that more people have better access to eyeballs, to funding, yeah. to support. And that actually really is a great segue for us to to start moving into the work that you're doing now with One Up yeah. Ventures. So those that have listened to the show before know that Mike and I are all about power to the workers, right? Mm-hmm. Even though we live mm-hmm. in a capitalist society, we all got to make our bread so we can eat. Yeah, exactly. And it's okay to need to make money off of your yeah. art. Absolutely. Yeah. Right? So in that in that vein of you got to get your bread, I'd love to talk about the difference between equity funding and project funding. Yes. Um, Yeah. And I do want to kind of touch on what you're saying a little bit, too. I also think that it's kind of like, um, this sounds silly, but I think it's very important to pay people for the work that they're doing, even when it's an art project Mm -hmm. or it's a creative endeavor. And part of that for me is to make sure, again, that it's accessible to more and different kinds of people. Because if you get in a situation where people who already have money are the only people creating art or making things, then you start to get a very narrow vision of like, Mm -hmm. you know, perspective and of creative vision. And so I think it's also just important in a sense that we're not like only allowing people who already have financial privilege to like make and create things. Um, so that's a huge, you know, it's a it's a it's a big thing for me. So, you know, I think if you're struggling with like, oh, I don't want to like commercialize my art or I don't want to do this, at least think of it in that way is that you're getting more accessibility to more voices and um, and different opinions. We need and, and you. Different stories. Yeah, exactly. Like we need, we to need you. And stuff. I mean, without yeah. without the measure of diversity that has been embraced, especially over the last several years, yeah. there needs to be more. There always needs to be more. Exactly. Yeah. But and- I, I, I love looking at it from the perspective of get paid for your art. Yeah. Your voice matters. We need more of that. I so agree. I love it. A thousand percent. Yeah. So to get into then the kind of technical question, so the difference between project financing and equity, um, and it's sort of a, a big and not so big question at the same time. Mm-hmm. So if you think of project financing, you kind of want to think of it as like for one individual project. Um, I would say project financing tends to come from like a publisher or a platform or something in that sense. The biggest difference there's a couple of key differences, but one of the biggest differences with doing project financing versus equity financing is that project financing pretty much 100% of the time is going to be tied to some sort of like revenue share. Um, and there's going to be some sort of agreement where like, okay, when this game launches, the publisher or the person who funded it is going to get X amount of money. You're going to get X amount of money. The platform is going to get, you know, it's, it's percent cut or whatever. And so it's based on 
the finances of that one individual project. Um, when you think of equity financing, that's based on the like profitability of the company overall. And that is almost always, there are some exceptions, but it is almost always when you sell the company. So basically mm-hmm. like your investors are not getting a part of rev share of an individual project. They're not even, unless you have a specific agreement for this, um, getting profit sharing in the company, they're getting paid out when you actually sell the company to another big company. So say you get acquired by Microsoft or Google or Meta or something like that. Um, so that's like one key difference I would say to keep in mind. And I think it's some, when I first heard that, I was like, that seems crazy. I, I thought <laughs> they would want to get money sooner than that. Um, but an equity investment, you're kind of on board with your investors for like seven to 10 years or maybe more. And so it's a pretty like long-term vision and they're investing in the studio and not in like a particular project. Um, So things with project financing, it tends to be based on milestones as well, too. So like a publisher might say like, okay, we pay out X amount of money on this milestone, X amount of money on this milestone, X amount, you know, when it gets closer, Um, they might do things like we help with a marketing spend or we put X amount of money into like promoting this game for you. We're going to feature it on whatever. Um, So there's things like that that are in project financing. Um, you know, a downside to that is that also a publisher could just be like, we're not going to do this anymore. You know, like you have a contract, but there's an agreement that like they can back out of it. You can back out of it. The relationship. It's a very different kind of exit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I mean, there's a ton of people who have experiences of like, I had this game funded by, you know, a publisher and then it got canceled and now you're kind of stuck with the team and two thirds of the game. And like, you know, you can shop it around to other publishers and platform holders and stuff, but you know, that's, um, that's a one downside of that. Whereas for an investor, basically you get all of the money up front and I'm sure there's exceptions, but they can't like come back and say like, you didn't hit this milestone, give us our money back. Or like, mm-hmm. we've changed our mind about the investment. Um, you know, like again, <laughs> asterisk, but generally um, that's not what's going to happen. So, you know, the, the plus and the minus on that is that if you have a publisher that you just really hate working with, you can do one game with them and never talk to them again. You could cancel it halfway through. If you have an investor you really don't like working with, you're kind of stuck, right? So, you know, that's the kind of like plus and, and minus on it on that side. Um, also, an investor or equity investment, they won't really do things like marketing spend or, you know, like they generally don't have teams of people that are helping you with like promoting and marketing your game. They'll more give you access in ideally to the capital that will allow you to either do that yourself or hire out someone. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do have a board of directors um, generally. And so those board of directors, my opinion of it before I got involved in it was more like a TV version of it, you know, where somebody dies and then their kid inherits it. And then the board is like, we hate you and we're going to vote you out. You know, it's always seen as like this kind of like <laughs> terrible, terrible, weird thing. Um, so it's I'm not sure that succession. Happens. Is that yeah. what we're saying? We're saying it's not succession. Okay. I mean, cool. I don't think in, I don't think in the like triple I in like video game space, it's not quite at that level. Let's, um, let's hope not. Oh yeah. God, yeah, that hurts no, that's head. a disaster. Oh, yeah. Oh. I mean, I haven't seen it in that sense. Again, you know, I'm a bit new at this, so this is, but generally like the board meetings that I've sat in on um, have been just basically like having really high level advisors who are literally invested in you doing well. And as someone who is a single founder, like I was a solo founder, I had a lot of advisors and people that helped me throughout the years, but there wasn't really anybody that was like on the team dedicated to just like helping me figure out how things are happening. Um, or, you know, to help make high level decisions. And so a board can kind of act as that. So like, they might not be like, oh, we're going to market your game for you, but they might have good insight into like what's going on in the game's marketing space, or they know someone who you can hire to do it, you know? So it's like, you basically have like really high level experienced, well-connected people who like are kind of obligated to help you (laughs) figure out what to do with your company. Um, So it can be beneficial in that way. Um, And just to kind of make one more point to clarify, like equity investment means equity in your company, which is basically selling a percent of your company. Mm -hmm. And it's, there's a lot of like, kind of funny math and stuff that goes into it, not in a bad way, but there's valuations, which is like what the value of your company is, which is generally set by like the lead investor. But that, Mm -hmm. that valuation doesn't mean anything generally until you sell it, right? So your company can be valued at say $100 million, 
But if you sell it for $200 million, then it's like its actual value is $200 million. Or maybe it was valued at $100 million, but you sold it for $3 million, then the company was worth $3 million. So the, the valuation is kind of like a paper or like an idea of what you think it might be worth when someone goes to mm-hmm. buy it. Um, so when you're selling the percents of the company, you basically make up a number of shares that your investors are going to have. And there's this whole thing around preferred shares and da, 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 which we won't get into. But yeah, and then that's... there's shares that you keep for yourself and the founders. There's shares that you keep for employees. Um, so employees get a percent of the company as well, too. Um, and generally, you're trying to keep that you at least as a company own over 50% of the equity in the company so that you can still basically not get successioned out of your company by the board. (laughs) I think that's an important point because as we've talked about in this conversation and we've talked about on the show, Uh equity investors are looking for the exit. And as you said, seven to 10 years, but if you have an equity investor who who ends up with 51% of the company, they can yeah. make that exit however and whenever they want because they control if they have 50, you know more than 50% of the voting shares danger yeah. <laughs> which means that you could end up in a situation you don't want to be in as the people making the games as as the people who founded the company because somebody else had the control and the ability to sell the company out from underneath you essentially yeah and this this and I will another big asterisk this is a part of that that I don't have a lot of experience in so I don't kind of want to say one way or the other cuz I kind of haven't gotten to a point where cuz when you do like later investments you do start ending up with less and less and less and less equity mm-hmm. um but you know generally I think that they still want the company to sell and they still want the people on board you know and all that kind of stuff but yeah like the kind of general consensus is that like you're trying to hold on to at least a majority share yeah. of the company so that you still have the rights to like make big decisions about things um, like stuff like, are you going to sell, you know, who the founders are, things mm-hmm. like that, like stock options and and stuff like that. Um, but now generally, two- oh, sorry. Um, no, no, saying, go ahead. Yeah. Generally, when you're doing your first couple rounds of investing, like you're selling like 20% or something, you know, so just to give an idea of kind of like you can do multiple rounds before you start getting into this kind of like danger zone of the like less than 50% situation. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of things that I love your perspective on. And one yeah. is the type of games that might be better ap- appropriate for project versus equity yeah. funding in the company. Um, so let's start there. And then I have one additional question. Great. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, a big thing to think about is that when you're doing equity funding, the investors are investing in your studio. So you might be making a singular game. Um, you might be wanting to make a portfolio of games. So I think that um, one of the ways that you want to think about it is if you're going to pitch for equity investment is to not just only focus on the one singular project, but to focus on like why the studio is going to be successful in the long term, you know, like what your goals are in the long term, Um, what you're going to do with the money, you know, like not just through the game, like, okay, we launched it done, you know, like what is the like post launch plan for that um, as well, too. So I think that I, I think it's actually just kind of mostly a personal choice, you know, on whether you want to do project financing versus equity investing. I mean, a big part of it would be the scale of it, right? Like, I'd say most investors, so it's a lot of work to be a lead investor. It's very expensive. There's a lot of legal fees, you know, like thinking like 50, 100, $200,000 in like legal fees, depending on the size and scale of the, of the deal. Um, and so, and then they have to put someone on the board of directors. Um, so one of the things that the one up fund does is that we don't lead. And this is one of the reasons why is because Mm -hmm. like, we can't, we make a broad, a very broad portfolio and a broad approach to the way that we're investing. So we're investing in 50 studios per fund, um, where like a lead investor might invest in like, I don't know, a dozen or however many games, because like when you start having a person on every single board, you can only have so many things that you've invested in. Right. Mm -hmm. So for an investor, I think generally if it's like sub a million dollars or something like that, it kind of starts getting diminishing returns on how much like time and effort and money needs to go into like leading the round and then being on the board versus like the potential return on investment of it. So I think if you're doing in this kind of like, you know, it's all relative smaller scale, like you're looking for (laughs) less than a couple million dollars um, overall for like your, you know, what you want to plan to do with your studio for the next 18 months or two years or something like that, then probably project financing um, would be a bit better. You know, I think that also to investors will tend to look at pretty experienced teams and people that have like some, some sort of experience of either 
you know, working on games in the past, seeing a game through launch, working at a big AAA company, previously founding a company. So I think too, if you're also just kind of getting started in the industry, it might be a little bit easier to get project financing. It's not to say that like, if you have a really cool, amazing project and really cool team that like you can't get equity investment, but I think it would be a lot harder. So I think the project financing would be better um, for something like that. And also I think too, if you're not clear what you want to do in the long term with the company, or if you're not thinking about, I want to exit this company at some point, or I want to sell this company at some point, then it's probably better to stick with project financing. So if you're, yeah, if you really want to make things that are kind of more on the art side, you know, and you want to make it sustainable for yourself, but you don't, it's considered, I'm making air quotes, like a lifestyle business, um, where you're just basically making money to make the next thing and to support what you're doing, then I would suggest project financing. If you really want to like grow um, and you're like, okay, we want to do this. And then the next step, we want to do this. And the next step, we want to do this. And, you know, maybe so-and-so buys it at the end. um, Then that would be, you know, a time to start considering doing equity investment. So I think some of it, like I said, is kind of like a personal decision on like, which one of these paths do you really want to take? Well, you answered my second question, Oh, okay. which was who, who (laughs) is project funding right for versus equity funding? So that you, and in terms of experience and, uh, and, and number of titles shipped or, or, you know, that sort of thing. So you answered that question. So that's awesome. Great. (laughs) Um, so I, I think the, the, the thing that would be really helpful especially for our listeners, a number of whom are independent developers yeah. is can you walk us through the process of what it's like to start a relationship with one up ventures or yeah. VCs in general? Yeah. And then just walk us kind of through how that emerges and, and kind of the arc of that whole thing. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the things that I'd, I'd want to say too, is um, that we didn't really touch on is that there's like different rounds of fundraising when you're doing equity investment. And so the first one typically tends to be an angel round or what's called a friends and family round, which I'm, I use the term, but it's like, if you don't have rich friends and family, then like, who are you asking for this money? Right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so an angel round um, are people that come in very early. They write, you know, tens of thousands of dollars or a couple hundred thousand dollars. Um, and then you do this on what's considered like a safe or convertible note, which is basically saying that when we price around, your investment will turn into a valuated, you know, equity investment. And so then the first um, the first round after that is typically called your seed round, uh, which is your first like priced round. And then it goes like ABC. I don't know how far up the alphabet it goes, but it goes up. the. We've alphabet. seen series it F, can, series. It can go. It can okay. get up pretty All high. Right. Okay. So you can. Yeah. So you can go. You run through the alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think you know, by Series F, you're either you're you're either looking you're to like sell giant. or yeah. you're IPOing because yeah. at that point, there's not again you run into that danger zone that yeah. you talked about. Yeah, yeah, and then the the numbers start getting very big, you know, and you've done multiple rounds. And anyways, um, so for us, um, we typically invest in in a seed round or what like what whatever you want to call like a first priced round. Um, and so for us, we're kind of looking at stuff a, a bit early. And so I think that. If you are going to go and you're like, okay, I want to get equity investment. For me, the biggest thing is to like work on your pitch deck. Um, The pitch deck is like, you know, however many slides you want to make it 10, 15, you know, you don't want it to be like too excessive, but not too short. Um, And that goal is twofold. I think one is that investors are just really used to seeing the format of a pitch deck. They're going to expect that you have it. Um, it's a good thing to talk through on your when you have a call with someone. But I actually think it's really important for the teams to do it because I am a big fan of like vision boarding and like deciding what your goals are before you go and do something. And like if you same take time, yeah, if you take the time to answer all of the questions, which a pitch deck is going to make you do in advance, then you will be more prepared on like what you need and what you need to ask for. Um, And a lot of times when you're in a pitch meeting and an investor is asking you questions or even a publisher is asking you questions, it's not so much that there's like a correct answer. Um, It's more that they want to know that you have an answer and that you've thought through it and that there's some reasoning behind the decision that you made for the reason that you said, right? So, I mean, I'm sure there's wrong answers. I'm sure I've heard some wrong answers, but like, you know, it's, it's mostly more like, do you have solid reasoning for like why you're asking for this money or what you think this timeline is or why you think that this game is going to be successful? And so I think a pitch deck is actually a really good opportunity for you and your founders to sit down and really decide like, what are your intentions about what you're starting and what you're doing? 
So I think if you have that really solid, um, you know, that starts to be the good time to, to reach out to do like pitches and things like that. Um, and so that process would look like you would get in touch with an investor who agrees to do a pitch meeting with you. I'm glossing over this because I actually think that that's a very hard part, depending on what your connections are. Some it is. Yeah, really. Yeah. And it's like, that's, huge. A, that's a big accessibility privilege kind of situation as well, too. Um, we have a contact form on the OneUp site that you can go to and you can fill out information and Ed and I review that. And then we'll reach out to you if we want to set up a meeting, if we feel like it's a good fit. Um, there are investors that have kind of like or investment firms that have things like that as well, too. LinkedIn is actually a very common place um, for people to hit up investors and ask questions or see if they can get a meeting in. Um, but, you know, probably the best way is to try to get an introduction if you can from someone. Um, but like I said, you know, if not, there are ways that you can kind of like cold reach out to people. Um, there's things like accelerators and incubators and, you know, stuff that kind of helps people get into these networks as well, too. Um, but once you get the meeting set up, then so... Yeah, so you will talk through your pitch deck, talk about um, you know what you're looking for, talk about the game, talk about the studio. Um, you know, the investor will ask questions and things like that. And then, mm -hmm. like I've mentioned a few times, you need to find someone who is going to like lead the round. And leading the round means mostly that they're going to probably put in the largest check size, um, but then also they're going to do all this paperwork <laughs> and all the legal stuff to get that going. And the big thing that a lead does is that they they set the price of the round. So they they decide what the valuation of the company is. And part of the goal of that is that there's some external expert or source that is saying like, we think that it is worth X amount of money. So then all of the follow-on investors can feel confident that that's like what the value of the company is. So that's kind of the goal of it. So each time that you have a round, you want to have a different lead investor because you want to have a new investor come in and look at it and say, we think it's now worth this amount of money. Because if the same investor mm. is like, oh, we now think it's worth three times the price, then everyone can be like, well, of course you do. Because like, <laughs> because you, you want to make money. Invested in yeah, yeah, so you, you seem very invested in this price. Right. Um, so it's good to kind of keep getting external validation from the market or from the industry or whatever that like the valuation is increasing or is decreasing or, or whatever it is. Um, I try, we try to tell people that like that, that time frame of like, okay, I got the lead and then I got my follow-ons. Everybody agrees to all the terms, you know, we sign all the paperwork. So you get a thing called a term sheet, um, which again, I won't go into too much detail, but you get a term sheet, which is kind of like a, like a promise ring, <laughs> you know, where you're it's like the contract. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then you kind of work through the details and you can do some negotiations if you get multiple term sheets and things like that. And then you go to a long form and then, so it's like a lot, of, it's a lot of paperwork and stuff and negotiating and, um, and then, so listeners, you know, real quickly, if you see the initials or the acronym LFA, that stands for long form agreement, you will hear hey. that thrown around a little bit. There you go. Um, and so, you know, once that's all done and signed and everything, and then, you know, then they transfer the money over and now like you've raised your, your first round, we kind of tell people to expect that that's going to take six months or more, you know, from basically start pitching to like, I have money in the bank account. Um, it's just, a it can be a very long process. You can talk to multiple investors. I've had some teams say that they've pitched to a hundred investors before they found a lead. You know, it can be, it can be a bit of a grind, um, and also, like I mentioned, the the kind of paperwork part of it, you might get someone on board, but it might take a month, two months or something even more for it to like close. Um, right. So just really keep that in mind. And even for subsequent rounds, you want to keep that in mind. Like you want to kind of wait until you have like 18 months or a year of runway left and probably start to at least go out and talk about it again so that you don't get to a point where you're like, oh, I'm out of money in like a month because it's really hard to close something <sighs> in that short mm -hmm. amount of time. You can get a thing what's called like a bridge loan, um, which some right. investors will do, um, which is a, literally a bridge from like, we think we're going to raise this next round, but we're kind of running low on funds now. So like mm -hmm. someone will put in the money kind of like a little early to like bridge you to that next uh, funding round. But, you know, ideally, like you're not ending up in that situation because it's it's a lot of work, you know, and as like a CEO that's running a company and especially a game studio, it's like you are involved in like the day to day of the company, you know, and overseeing what's going on with the game and you're doing all the stuff. And then you're also like fundraising on top of it. So it can be a hard like balance um, to get yeah. everything done. So you just don't want to be in situations where you're just fundraising all of the time. Um, you want to try and raise enough that you can go a long period of time 
or enough period of time without having to fundraise so that you can focus on building and running the studio Mm -hmm. and getting the game made, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Good tip. Yeah, it's excellent. Yeah. Yeah. We talk about managing cash flow a lot and that's, that's a big piece of it. Yeah. And And it's also really difficult. It is very, (laughs) like if you don't know what you don't know, then hire someone who knows. So yeah. you don't have to deal with it. Get so, get a business manager. Get yes. someone that understands accounting. You get know, a lawyer who all... understands like how to negotiate this type of deal. Yeah, and, and help you and help explain to you all the things that you very likely do not know. Yeah, the number of times, and especially this is very prevalent in the indie game scene, and even outside of investment is that like the number of people that are like that founded a game studio they're like I just wanted to make a video game and now I'm running a company is like very high mm-hmm. and so that's something it's to really extremely think about high. Yeah. yeah and like there's nothing wrong with just being like I want to be the designer or I want to be the programmer but yeah you really need to find someone who's going to want to run and do the business side of it and the kind of CEO yeah. role of it because it is it is a big it's a big role and it's, it's very so very much. hard to do both at the same time it, um, it is. And yeah. I want to bring this back to people real quickly, because yeah. unless you're a solo developer, if you're out there raising, chances are you're not a solo developer if you're out there raising equity funds. Yeah, yeah. Right. But the moment you do that, the moment you take other people on, especially full time, you are responsible for them. And part of that responsibility is ensuring that their paycheck's clear, ensuring that yeah. those direct deposits hit when they're supposed to hit. So that people can actually not panic about making their own rent and putting food on their table and making yeah. car payments and all of that stuff. I, I will say that like when I became a founder, the weight of that emotionally was way higher and more difficult and harder than I thought it was going to be. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I had been like the second or third or like, you know, like I'd worked in a lot of startups, um, you know, prior to starting my own company. And so in my mind, I was like, oh, it's like 25% more work or 30% more work. It was like 200% more work. And yeah, a lot 100% of it was that. Yeah. And a lot of it was the emotional weight. And I kind of joke about this a little bit that it's like, I think at some point being a CEO or like building and scaling a company is kind of about like how much therapy have you done or like how kind of like grounded are you in your like emotional state, uh, less so on like how great of a business person or something you are, because it just starts to become a lot of really complicated, deep emotional problems, essentially, that like you start to come up against and like building a company and studio culture and dealing with people and with all of these obligations and stuff like that, like you kind of really need to be um, like, I don't want to say like buttoned up, like you have to be perfect in this stuff, but it is, I, I'd say the emotional weight component was something that I kind of really wasn't expecting. Um, and I think that it's someplace that like, it's worth having help in. And that's like one of the reasons why the one up community part is like really important to me and why I think it was important in the mega booth as well too, is to like have other founders who are your peers to be able to talk to because you being a founder is a kind of like lonely slash unique weird situation and you don't have a ton of peers and you don't work with those peers all the time. And so like having those people to be able to lean on and feel supported by and ask questions to who have been through the process before, I think can be like incredibly important. Um, So that's also just something to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, I think this is, this has been, been really wonderful because I think, you know, a big piece of what we do is demystify some of the more complex topics. And this is funding is one of the most complex topics yeah. and one of the most important when it comes to when it comes to running a studio, running yeah. a business. And I, I think, too, um, you know, VC investment in the game space, it's not super new, but it's relatively new at the scale and the scope at what's happening yeah. now. And so there's mm-hmm. a lot of yeah, a lot of kind of literacy and education and stuff that I think needs to happen around it, um, you know, for people to know what they're getting into and understand so that they can make informed decisions about it. Um, and, you know, I would just, I, I think that I'm more positive on it now than I was when I first started working on it, the more that I know about it, because I just think that there are, uh, there are some benefits that I hadn't thought of, um, you know, and some of the downsides, you know, I think are there, but it's more can be more of like kind of like a lifestyle decision, I think more so than like kind of a, you know, super bad financial decision or something like that. Um, so I would I would really encourage if people are are potentially thinking about it to really like 
explore it and be open to it. And even if you just talk with a couple investors and, you know, kind of test the waters and see how you feel about it so that you can make a more informed decision about it. It's just like, a, it's cool that there's just kind of like another avenue and another option um, for people to be able to get their games financed. Because like I said, at the, when I first started over 10 years ago, it was very confusing to me on like where yeah, people absolutely. were getting money to do this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, one other quick thing that I wanted to mention too, when I was thinking about the process of pitching is um, I think you don't always need this, but I think that it's it's good practice to do it or it's good to do it is to have your kind of founding and core team in place um, or at least ready when you're starting mm-hmm. to go to pitching. And this, I don't think we have time to kind of get into it now, but like this is a super, super common problem. It's very chicken and egg. It's like, well, I don't have money to pay the team to come on board, but I need the team to do the pitches. So like, how do I get the money, you know, and that's kind of where the angel friends and family round comes into place. Um, But a lot of investors really want to see that your founding team at least is in place and they're committed to the idea. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So it can be a little tough if you're just like, oh, I'll find founders later. You know, maybe you can do that for like the angel round or something. But I think once you start getting into like a priced round, um, it's really important that you have a core team because the investors are investing in the team and investing in the studio um, and not in the individual project. So like a publisher might not really care so much about that. Like they might want to know who's on the team and stuff. But that's um, that's one thing that I think is it's a really, really common problem for people to run into, like at the very beginning of pitching. And just to be clear, these are not just in place, but in place and working yeah, correct. Yeah, ideally. Yeah. Um, because, well, yeah, even if it's only a few, like if your core co-founders are like three people or something, mm-hmm. you know, that can be enough. And then you could be like, okay, we have five or six people that are ready to like hop on or they're doing part time. Yeah. You, you also want to be careful that if they're at a company still that the legally they're allowed to yeah. be doing something else. Doing side projects. Yeah, that you didn't yeah. just accidentally sell your IP before you got to an investor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah assignment clauses are a real thing. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways, that was just something that I wanted to mention. No, I think that's that's an important point because it's again, it's different between project funding and equity funding. Project funding, you can have some people who are like, once we get once we get a publisher, I have these people who are ready to start full time. That's yeah. fine. Equity, yeah, you want to have that core team and you want them like kind of on the ground already. Yeah. Yeah. And it and really it really does come down to are you like you said, are you looking to fund your game? Or are you looking to build a business? Are you looking Mm -hmm. to build a long-term, a long-term studio that has more than one game that has, you know, uh, it has growth strategies in mind that, you know, they're looking towards the future. And that's a really difficult thing to do if your brain and your, and your heart are really in the art of it rather than the running the business part of it. Well, and some, it was kind of, I want to say like advice slash story that I heard when I was uh, talking with someone about the future of the mega booth was that there was this like bakery company in San Francisco that was like this little bakery shop and everyone loved it. And then eventually Starbucks bought it or something, you know, so it became like this big kind of corporate thing. And then they just basically opened up a new little shop and just called it, you know, a new thing. And like, so I think, you know, and as someone who's founded a company, you know, it's your, it's your baby you're super precious about it. Um, and there's something about thinking about like, okay, well, if I make and create and build and then sell this thing, what does that enable for me in the future? You know, so like you yeah. can't, you might be able to fully fund, you know, that kind of dream that you have of like making art and in the process, you know, makes make money for your team. Like uh, I had a friend recently who sold their company and they're like, I've like basically been able to change people's lives in the sense of like creating generational wealth for my employees, which is crazy oh, right and so like if you want to think about it too yeah if you want to think about it in that way and like once you do sell like you're normally obligated you know to like work there for a certain amount of years and your options vest and there's all this stuff so you are committing to like time past the point where you sell it generally but that doesn't mean your entire life and it doesn't mean your entire career and it doesn't mean that you can't pursue other projects or things that you want to do past that you so can't I, go I do it something. all over again right like yeah. you can go do it as many times as you want. Exactly. Go yeah. make more dreams come true. Create more generational wealth. I love, yeah. I love that. What a wonderful nugget to end this conversation on. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a lot of ways to look at it. This has been so wonderful. Kelly, thank you so, so much. And thank you all for listening to the Virtual Economy Podcast. Uh, so this is normally where we would share our Twitter accounts. 
uh, which we'll do. But you'll notice that both of us have drastically reduced our Twitter presence as we figure out what other networks might be as problematic as the bird app uh, spirals downhill very quickly. Uh, but if you would like to follow us there and we will still be promoting the show, you can do so at virtual econ cast. I am at footerish F U T T E R I S H. And I'm my name, Amanda Farrow. Mm-hmm. Kelly, where can people find you? I am also just my name on everything. I'm at Kelly Wallach on pretty much everything. Um, the one up fund, you can go to oneupfund.com. Um, you can read a little bit more about what we do and see the portfolio teams. And as I mentioned, the, the, um, contact form is on there. Um, yeah, I'm always happy to talk about this kind of stuff. We love talking to teams early. Um, this is actually a great conversation for me because it's the first time I've really gotten to kind of like share all of this random information I've gathered up over the last two years. So I very much appreciate this. Thank you. Oh, for us, this is not random. This was, this was (laughs) radical. This is great. Love it. (laughs) Uh, so yeah, you can subscribe to our RSS feed at virtualeconcast.com. You can also listen to us on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Amazon Stitcher, Pocket Cast, and pretty much every podcast app there is. We would love it if you would subscribe and if possible, review the show. Let us know what you think. You can also DM us with any questions. Like we are hungry for listener questions. So if this sparked any questions that you might have, even if we can't answer them, we, we can email Kelly. Yeah. And Kelly might answer questions. We are obligating Kelly in real time right now. <laughs> hey, Oops, I'm happy to bad. do that. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm happy literally to just questions. said she loves talking to people. So I'm just, I'm just building on that. You're I'm just building good. on that. But this for real, will... we love listener questions. So get at us. You can try our Twitter account um, or you can send it to us at podcast at fsquared.biz. You can also get in on our Discord. Our Discord is very chill. We don't do yeah. a ton, we don't do a ton of businessing on there. There's a lot of tabletop just like, and food picks and dry racing like just, racing games and a lot of a lot of yelling about Need for Speed right now. Yeah. There's a lot of yelling about Need for Speed pretty much all the time. Um, and that's that's gonna be that's gonna be us. Yeah, but in the meantime, remember to wash your hands, stay hydrated, and be good to one another. Kelly, thank you so so much, and we will see you soon. Thank you. 